Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this teaching class from the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. We're preaching and teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and these teaching classes are designed to be a starter for conversations in our smaller groups. Today we're in Mark chapter 11, tons of great material as always. So let's dive in by first of all looking at Jesus entering Jerusalem as a king. So he comes to Bethphage, to Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, and he sends two disciples ahead saying, go into the village and you'll find a colt there, untie it, bring it here. If anybody asks you what's going on, say the Lord needs it, he'll send it back. They find the colt that's tied up, they untie it, the people ask them, what are you doing? They tell them what Jesus has said. People let them go, they bring the colt to Jesus, throw their cloaks over it, and they and he sits on it. And then many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. He goes into Jerusalem, into the temple courts, looks around at everything, but it's late, so he goes out to Bethany uh, with the twelve. So uh, what is uh, going on here? Well, I wonder if you've ever been part of a big victory parade. I happened to be in Manchester. I was visiting a congregation. They're doing us some speaking, and I happened to be there on the day after the Champions League final in 1999. For any of you who are old enough to remember that, and Man U had just won the Champions League and the victory parade was that next day when I was in Manchester and I was on Dean's Gate and caught up in the whole thing as the victory parade went, went past with the big double-decker buses and the, and the trophy was being uh, uh, shown off to everybody and the, the team were there and the crowds were huge and it was cheering and the, it was impossible not to get swept up in it all. It was quite something. A bit of a contrast to this entrance this this entrance this not quite a, what it is a kind of parade it's an it's a triumphal entry but not of the kind that we might think or certainly the people of Israel were expecting in terms of their Messiah coming into Jerusalem so if we start this scene in uh, on the Mount of Olives uh, which is about nearly 3,000 feet high and is thought of uh, was thought of as a place of judgment Zechariah 14 verse 4. So is this king coming in judgment is a question that this is posing. Zechariah 14 verse 4. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split into east to west very wide valley and it's a scene of judgment going on there. What do you think about that? Then something else we notice here and I wonder what you think of this is the way in which Jesus is quite you could say demanding. Are we meant to notice this? He looks like he's doing a few things in quite a demanding way. He's demanding a cult. I need this cult. He's demanding that his disciples follow his rather strange instructions. He's demanding or expecting to be received as a king. It looks to be honored, to be the center of attention, which is not like Jesus. He's acting, it looks like, as one to inspect and judge the temple, which is going to happen, as we see later in the chapter. Isn't this a bit of a contrast to the previous chapter, where he talked about servant leadership? And in fact, chapter 11 continues with many other demands. He demands fruit from the fig tree. Well, look at this. He demands the expulsion of the traders. He demands the right to be able to refuse to answer a question. How can such a demanding Jesus be justified? I'm going to leave that with you to discuss. What do you think about that? And the only thing I will say about it is, does the fact that 
Jesus created all things make a difference and that he is a cosmic king? Does that make a difference to his legitimization of his demands? Something for us to think about here, and I wonder what you think. Now, this cult has never been ridden. That's a, a significant point because a king does not ride somebody else's horse. You only ride an unridden horse or one that you've only ever ridden. So he is acting like a king here. And of course, in the Old Testament, animals for sacrifice never worked. And so this has never worked as an animal and it is carrying the king to his ultimate sacrifice in Jerusalem. We some, have some allusions to Old Testament passages here, like Genesis 49 verse 11, a passage that was seen as messianic. It says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes, his robes in the blood of grapes. That's Genesis 49. And we have allusions to coronations in the Old Testament, like Jehu in 2 Kings 9.13. In haste, every man then took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Similarly, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38 to 40, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn from the tent, anointed Solomon, they blew the trumpet, all the people said, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so the earth was split by their noise. So we're seeing King King, king, king is what's coming out from this passage all the time. And they offer willing sacrifices. These people that are there, they, they praise him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the coming kingdom of our father David. There we see those two key allusions. Rather. Uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey? On a colt, the fall of a donkey. Jesus certainly knew what he was doing right here. Hopes are high. Expectations are high. Uh, Hosanna, save us. Uh, we've got history, you could say, coming to fruition. Psalm 118, verses 21 to 27. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Key phrase there. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. These people knew those passages. They knew what was going on. Now, they don't fully understand who Jesus is. They want a warrior, King David. Of course, we understand that. But Jesus had a different and a more wonderful agenda than any of them. So he goes down to the temple and he thinks it's a bit late. So he says, all right, let's come back another time when it's, uh, when it's, it's time for us to, uh, to deal with the issues that we find here. Just a few thoughts before we go on to the next passage. Have you ever been to or seen on television one of those festivals, maybe like um, like in the Euros or the World Cup or the football, and a goal is scored, and then everybody throws their arms in the air in celebration? They're not even thinking about it. It is, it is reflexive to the point where a lot of times people are holding those plastic pints of beer in their hands, and they throw their hands in the air. And one of the funniest things to watch, at least on television, not probably if you're there, is to see hundreds of pints of beer being just showered everywhere and coming down on everybody 
there's that reflex. And here we have these people who just seem to have a reflex to shout out and throw their cloaks down and palm branches and praise God. And I wonder whether we could do with a bit more of that spirit in our gatherings of just being so excited that God is with us and God loves us and that, and that we live a life of joyful sacrifice. I wonder if that's something worth thinking about. Now, let's go on to the next passage. Verse 12. In verse 12, we have the, well, the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple courts. Jesus was hungry. He sees that fig tree. He went out to find if it had any fruit and he finds none because it's not the season for figs. And he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him. He goes into Jerusalem, temple courts, drives out those who are buying and selling there, overturns the tables. Um, he doesn't allow anybody to carry merchandise through the temple courts. It is it not written, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Chief priests and the teachers, they want to now kill him. They're afraid. The crowd are amazed. Disciples go out of the city in the evening and the morning. They see the fig tree withered. And Peter remembers what Jesus had said. And he obviously thinks it's quite extraordinary. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anybody says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it. It'll be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So figs, uh, what's all this to do with everything else? Well, Jesus knew it wasn't the season for figs to be ripe. So why would he go over to the tree in the first place? Presumably the if of if it had any fruit implies that it was unlikely and that Jesus knew so. But he uses the incident to draw a parallel with the spiritual condition of the religious leaders in Israel, because that's the context here. The green leaves appear to promise fruitfulness, but in fact, the exact opposite is the case. The leaders of Israel are similarly appearing pious and godly, when in fact they're not producing the kind of children that God is looking for. And the fig tree, of course, is a symbol of Israel. Jesus' disappointment with the fig tree parallels his disappointment with Israel. There was so much promise, but so little fruit. The tree looks healthy, but it's not doing its job, much like the temple and its system. So what is Jesus doing? He's performing what you might call a prophetic sign act, much like Old Testament times. And look these up for some further Bible study. Isaiah 20 verses 1 to 6, Jeremiah 13 verses 1 to 11, same Jeremiah uh, chapter 19 verses 1 to 13, and Ezekiel chapter 4, 1 to 15. It'll give you some insight as to what's going on here from a Jewish perspective. Israel here has been judged and found wanting. The final judgment was in the future, but the prophecy is made now. Like tree, like temple, like temple, like nation, the parallel is exact. So he carries out this decisive action, a man of conviction, um, being a man of action, as he is in the temple courts. It's one of the few incidents reported where Jesus' use of these quotes in the Old Testament are not angry shouts, but part of a greater body of teaching he's clearly giving that day. He, he acts, then teaches. Teaching meaning continued teaching. It's a good model for those of us who would be teachers of the Bible and would wish to have an impact on people around us. It's not just standing up 
on a, a, at an event to teach, but it's a life of continued teaching. Of course, the religious leaders are not happy about this. Uh, they are not convicted as they should be. Instead, they are annoyed, hurt and threatened by the convictions and actions of Jesus. They have an opportunity here to demonstrate repentance, but they blow it. Uh, there are two examples of anger here. Jesus is angry at unrighteousness. The Pharisees are angry at the threat to their authority. Their authority was defined by the ability, or at least in their mind, the right to enforce the outward appearance of righteousness, at least defined by them. But this blinded them to the more significant matters of the law. Matthew 23, verse 23, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Like fig tree, like temple, like temple, like nation. Now the text here does not say that Jesus cursed the tree specifically, but that's how Peter took the saying. If this is what was meant by Jesus, then it implies he cursed the religious system of his day also. Perhaps you might say even Israel itself. And then he talks about the mountain and this mountain. So what is he talking about about throwing this mountain? Uh, is he saying something particular about the Mount of Olives uh, here? Is this a part of the specific prophetic sign he's making against the religious leadership and corrupted religious system? As God will destroy the current order of things in about AD 70, therefore his disciples need fear nothing, so the disciples can prophesy against any other part of the established scene, including this mountain. There may be an allusion to Zechariah 14 verse 4 here, which mentions a removal of the Mount of Olives on the day of God's promised future salvation of Israel. That could be what's going on. And if the mountain is the Mount of Olives, the Dead Sea can be seen from the top. And this might be the sea mentioned by Jesus uh, in this particular passage. This statement implies that Jesus' pronouncement of the fig tree was a prayer. Interesting to think about it like that. And prayer is sometimes asking for things that are not pleasant. I mean, have a look in Gethsemane for that matter, Matthew 26, or even chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 7. Our desire in prayer should not be so much what we want, but that our will may match that of the Father. And then to believe that we have the strengthening that we might need to live in proper submission to his will, God's will, just like Jesus did. Uh, have a look at John 5, verse 19. That kind of prayer will always be answered by God. Have a look in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And here the you, if you pray like this, is plural. So it seems that communal prayer is also in the mind of Jesus. And we see that in the book of Acts, Acts 4, verse 24, and Acts chapter 12, verse 12, where they pray prayers like this. And those prayers are heard. We are only heard because of God's grace. So why should we expect to be heard if we will not extend grace to others? It talks about forgiveness here. Forgiving others is not so much just a thing we do, like a duty, but it's a lifestyle of, of course, we're going to forgive. The next section begins in verse 27. So again, in Jerusalem, he's walking in the temple courts and the chief priests and all that are there. And they ask him by what authority you, he is doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Jesus said, I'll ask you the one question. Answer me. I'll tell you. John's baptism. Was it from heaven? or of human origin tell me they discuss it and they say to themselves mm, if we say from heaven he'll say why don't you didn't you believe him if we say from human origin mm, they feared the people because all the people thought that john really was a prophet so they said well we, we don't know so jesus says well neither will i tell you by what authority i am doing these things so what's going on here well no doubt the 
people in authority of his day are wondering what's next. I mean, he's been doing extraordinary things. He's turning over the tables. He's driving people out of the temple. He's coming into uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's got people cheering him. I mean, all kinds of strange things are going on. And so they decide to have another chat with him. And of course, the theme of authority is such a big theme in, well, all the Gospels, very prominent in Mark. And you might like to do your own personal Bible study in, in that. Look up the word authority. Have a look in particular in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 3, and Mark chapter 6, running up to where we are now. It would, of course, have been a very important theme for the early church, uh, both with the Jewish and Gentile segments, uh, the one more assaulted by the Jewish system and the other by the Roman system. How do you deal with the authorities, those who have the power over us? The Jewish people, largely the uh, the religious leaders of their day and their time. Uh, for the Gentile believers, as the church grew and expanded, more perhaps the Roman system. They had to reckon with who has authority, who do we ultimately obey? One of the commentaries I read says this, their greatest condemnation, this is the religious leaders of his day, their greatest comment, condemnation is that they do not seem to have considered this question here that we've got here, uh, that he asks them about John's baptism as a moral probe, but purely as an intellectual trap. Their query, as they sought to reply, was not true or false, but safe or unsafe. The root of the trouble lay not in their intellect, but in their stubborn wills. They stood self-condemned. Worth thinking about there. Honesty is not about what kind of trouble or not it will get us into, whether it's safe or not, to be honest. But surely it's about what is right and wrong, what is true and untrue. Now, Jesus does not allow them to pin him down because they are refusing to deal with the real issues themselves. The real matter at hand is why they will not accept God's call to repentance. First issued by John the Baptist, of course, and now repeated by Jesus. It's as if they, it's as if they cannot or perhaps will not see God in all of this. And if they cannot or will not, then there's nothing Jesus is going to say is going to change their minds. This confrontation prepares the ground for the parables that are going to come uh, in the next chapter or two there. The uh, servants are to be understood as the prophets of the Old Testament, among whom John is grouped, Mark 11.32 here. This confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders is, in other words, a vivid example of their characteristic rejection of God's prophets that Jesus condemns in, in fact, Mark chapter 12. For Mark's readers, this incident demonstrates that the reason for Jesus's rejection was a spiritual blindness, not just to Jesus, but to John and all the other servants got sent by God to prepare Israel for Jesus, quoting Hurtado from his commentary there. So to wrap up, some thoughts for us to consider and perhaps to discuss in our local groups. Firstly, Jesus teaches servant leadership in Mark chapter 10. We looked at that last time, or perhaps you did on Sunday. He teaches servant leadership, and then he demands a cult, accepts the adulation of a crowd, curses a fig tree, drives out merchants, turns tables over, refuses to answer a question. And yet, surely that can't be a contradiction. It can't be a negative thing in the character of Jesus. So if it's not, why is that? So I'd like to know what you think about that. And what do these bold actions of Jesus tell you about his character? In what way could they be an inspiration to you in your circumstances? As Mark's gospel approaches its climax, we're almost there. Uh, 
we see Jesus in ever greater conflict with the religious authorities of his day. Are we in danger of being cursed like the fig tree of dishonoring the temple, temple of the Holy Spirit now, us, right? Of being better off being thrown in the sea, of misunderstanding the authority of God? What might Jesus say to you and me, to our local groups, to help us keep our eyes on him instead of being just religious people who happen to go through religious motions. The crowd were right when they said that Jesus and the coming kingdom were blessed. But they didn't understand that the king of kings was coming. What does it mean to you and your group that Jesus is king and that King Jesus has come? I'd love to know your thoughts. So drop me a line. Uh, you can also send me any questions or suggestions. You can email me on malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Uh, feel free to email me there anytime you like. So until the next time, I hope you enjoy being in the presence of the king. The king who rode on a donkey. The king who was humble. The king who was strong. The king who was loving. And the king who wasn't afraid to confront those who needed to hear some truth. Till the next time, take care and God bless you.